0: In your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation 9. And just a reminder that chapters 8 to 11 contain the third of seven cycles within the book of Revelation that describe the time between Jesus' first and second comings. And if you remember, we saw last week in the first half of chapter 9, the fifth trumpet that's going to bring us to the last half of chapter nine and the sixth trumpet and then the seventh trumpet isn't until midway through chapter 11. But chapters 8-11 not only contain the third of seven sections but also the well-known seven trumpets. And so we pick up our reading with the sixth angel in Revelation 9 and 13. Then the sixth angel sounded And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Well, I think it's probably obvious that this particular section is one of the more difficult ones in the book of Revelation, but if we just keep in mind some of the main interpretive principles that I've been underscoring along the way, it's actually not as difficult as it may appear. Last week, in considering the first half of chapter 9 and the fifth trumpet, we saw Satan and his demons unleashed on the earth. And this brings us then to verses 13 to 21 and the sixth trumpet. And I want to consider this passage under these two headings, first explained and then applied. First of all, I want to explain what's going on here, and then I want to back up and suggest three broader applications from this rather sober, a bit perplexing admittedly, but nevertheless sober and highly instructive passage of Holy Scripture. Verses 13 to 21 in describing the sixth trumpet describes four angels released from heaven and these four Previously bound angels give way to a massive army comprised of horsemen. And the number of these horsemen, obviously, are uh, are, there's very many of these horsemen. The number, you find it there in verse 16, 200 million. Obviously, it's just a figurative term to underscore numerous horsemen. And we're going to see that uh, it's not so much the horsemen who are dangerous, but it's the horses. Because out of the mouth of the horses come three plagues. And those three plagues are, are um, the cause of one-third of humanity's death. Now, verse 18 actually identifies these Uh, three things that come out of the horse's mouths at the end of verse 17, fire, smoke, and brimstone. Verse 18 describes them as plagues. Now the word plagues there is supplied by our translators because you find it down further in verse 20. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. And then verse 18 goes on to identify the nature of the three plagues by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. So we have demonic activity controlled by God because notice all of this comes from the throne room of God, verse 13, and then we find the devastation that takes place on earth through these horses and horsemen and the the three plagues that come from their mouth. So we learn at the outset that while God sits as sovereign over this destruction, he utilizes demons and different things called plagues, we'll identify those here in a moment, to accomplish his perfect purposes. So while God is holy and righteous, he's also sovereign. And so while we say that God isn't the author of, Of sin. He is the sovereign of sin. And he's also the sovereign of the plagues and the death and the four demons. I take that to mean the four angels because these are bound angels through which God brings to pass his perfect purposes. And so we find that there's plagues. We're going to see those are natural disasters and wars. There's demons, and yet there's God that sits over top them all. Now, the three plagues by which a third of mankind was killed obviously takes us back to the ten plagues upon Egypt back in Exodus. For example, think of Exodus 9, verse 13 and 14. Let my people go that they may serve me, for at this time I will send all of my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there's none like me in all the earth. So the plagues, the ten plagues that fell upon the Egyptians, um, I think are are thought of here when we find three plagues fall upon the world. And I want to suggest, too, that we learn something in terms of the purpose of the plagues in Exodus 9, 13, 14, that you may know that there's none like me in all the earth. We're going to see that one of the main purposes for these plagues is to cause sinners to know that God is sovereign and righteous and just, and that in one of two ways, by damnation or redemption. But either way, man is going to know through these plagues, That there's none in heaven but God. And so the bottom line is clear here in terms of an understanding, I think, of what's going on. With the sounding of this fifth trumpet, deadly plagues are spread over all the earth so as to kill a third of mankind. All right. So we have deadly plagues. And again, the plagues are identified in verse at the end of 17 and 18 as fire, smoke, and brimstone. So notice a few things then as we're seeking to explain this fifth trumpet with regards to these three plagues. Notice first their nature, secondly their result, and thirdly their reason. First, the nature of the plagues. Now I've already said that in some of your Bibles you you, you have the word plagues in verse 18 and some of your Bibles you don't. Uh, and, that's, and there's the simple way to to explain that is, you, all of our Bibles find the word plagues down in verse 20. And so our translators, some of our translators have taken the liberty to add that word up into verse 18. But either way, it's down in verse 20, and I think it's a rather important term. The Greek word translated plagues literally refers to wounds, caused by blows. Wounds caused by blows. It's translated sometimes blows, other times wounds. And the reason why is because it refers to wounds caused by blows. And uh, we also find, as, as I've already pointed out, that these plagues are fire, smoke, and brimstone. And these three plagues come from the horse's Mouths. Now, I want to suggest to you, without going into great detail to prove it, by fire, smoke, and brimstone are meant wars, desolation, and destruction. It's, uh, I think it's William Hendrickson that takes a page or two to show from the scriptures that oftentimes fire is associated with wars, smoke, desolation, brimstone with destruction and the judgment of God. These are the plagues, and what's important here is this. These wars, desolation, and destruction are the plagues or the blows that come from God causing wounds that kill a third of mankind. All right? That's the nature of the plagues. The nature of the plagues are that they're likely wars, desolation, and destruction, Secondly, notice their result in verse 18. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. That is, they were killed by the fire, smoke, and brimstone, which came out of the horses' mouths. Now, this is in contrast to the locusts, if you remember. Under the previous trumpet, back in verse 5, the demons, remember, that's what the locusts were. The demons were not given authority to kill them but to torment them. And so I think we can conclude, while the demons lack the ability to kill people, they have been given authority from heaven, from God, to utilize these plagues that do in fact kill people. Now you have that kind of illustrated, don't you, back in Job. Remember God forbid Satan to kill Job, But Satan did utilize various plagues, wars and destruction, to kill off many of Job's family members. And so we find that there's a restriction placed upon the demons under the previous trumpet. And in some sense, that restriction is now removed. Or now the demons, those four angels, now have the ability through these plagues to rack uh, or to, um, to create havoc on earth that leads to the death of one-third of its population. Now I don't believe one-third necessarily here needs to be taken literally. But I think it's probable that if you were to think about it, how many people, brethren, have been killed by wars, desolation, and destruction over the years? And it's probably rather accurate to, to guess or to conclude that around a third of mankind has fallen beneath these three plagues. So their nature is that there wars, desolation, and destruction. The result is the death of one-third of mankind. And then notice the reason for them. Why is it that these plagues have been um, released upon the earth? Well, we find... From the latter part of the passage, beginning at verse 20, it's, as re- it's the judgment of God as the result of the rebellion of man. It's a judgment of God upon the sin of man. Verse 20, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. I think by the works of their hands is meant the idols. And if you notice, these people worship idols and demons. Now, these aren't necessarily two separate things, because as we'll see here in a minute, to worship idols is to worship demons. To worship idols is, in fact, demonic. That's the point here. So it's not like there were some who worship idols, some who worship demons. No, in worshiping idols or false gods, they were, in fact, worshiping demons. For example, God said this of his own people back in Deuteronomy 32, 16. They made him jealous, or Moses said of Of God's people. They made God jealous. With their foreign gods. And angered him with their idols. They sacrificed to demons. Which are not God. So to worship foreign and false gods. Through idols. Is the same thing as sacrificing. To demons. Perhaps I can put it like this. There's really only two objects. All mankind worships. There's the creator. And the created. And to worship the created is idolatry and ultimately is worshiping this world controlled by Satan himself. So it's not that today people, or even perhaps those people in the olden days, consciously were worshiping demons. They may have been convinced they were worshiping gods. But nevertheless, they were in fact worshiping false gods, and to worship false gods is to worship this world controlled by and governed by Satan himself. Perhaps put it most simply, I could say, put it like this. To worship anything other than God is to worship this world that's demonic controlled. To worship anything other than God is to worship this world that's demonic controlled. And, brethren, this is what Satan wants, isn't it? Remember what he said to Jesus in Matthew 4, 9. All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This is what Satan wants. And thus he's behind all of the idolatry that takes place in this world, even though that idolatry, as we will seen in a moment, takes place many forms, okay? Idolatry is more than just bowing to literal idols, as we'll see in a minute. There's really two types of people in the world. Again, there's those who worship the true God, and then there's idolaters who worship this world controlled by demons and Satan himself. He then characterizes such idolaters described in verse 20, in verse 21, with four sins, murder, sorcery, sexual immorality, and thieves. Now, if you notice, out of the four, there's three clear violations of the second table. Now, the word translated sorceries is the Greek word you might know from which we get our English word, "pharmaceutical." And it means more than one thing. But nevertheless, at the heart of it, it describes the use of drugs. The use of drugs. And uh, obviously even the misuse of drugs here is what's underscored. These four sins describe, brethren, our present age. Just stop and think of it for a second. These four sins describe... The United States of America in 2019. Murder. What, do you, what comes to mind when you think of murder? Abortion. Drug abuse. Legal and illegal drugs. Brethren, we're a, a drugged up nation. We use more legal. There's more people addicted to legal drugs than illegal drugs. Sorceries. That's what the Bible calls it. Sexual immorality, you don't even have to comment on that one, and thefts. Now, thefts it's more than just running into a bank and robbing it at gunpoint, it really underscores the idea of discontentment and covetousness. Is there ever, brethren? There's I don't know that there's a nation on the planet more overtaken with discontentment and covetousness than our own thefts, murder, drug abuse, sorceries, sexual immorality, and thefts. But brethren, surely you understand that these four things not only describe this present age, but every age since the fall. This passage in Revelation 9 isn't thinking necessarily or specifically of USA 2019 is thinking of mankind in rebellion to God. This is what's characterized mankind in rebellion from God from the fall. And it's interesting if you think about it, really every other sin comes up under one of these four. Murder, sorcery, sexual immorality, and discontentment. Materialism covetousness, thefts, all right? So that's the passage very quickly explained. Now let us back up, and let me suggest three applications from it. Three lessons we learned from this very instructive text. First of all, all men worship something. Brethren, we all worship something. We are all by nature worshipers, and we all fundamentally worship one, or one of two things. We worship this world, controlled by Satan, or we worship God, the creator of all things. And here's why. The heart of man has been created to worship. We're all worshipers of something or some Now, you know, to worship fundamentally means to bow before or serve. So it doesn't have to necessarily take a distinct religious flavor. I mean, uh, an atheist, for example, can say, well, I don't worship anything. Well, that's not true. Whatever you bow before, whatever you serve, whatever you elevate as the most important thing in your life Whatever you love and adore most, in some sense or another, is that which you worship. We all worship, brethren. I mean, think of it. This passage is talking about unsaved people. All unsaved people on the earth. And it describes them as what? Idolaters. And their idolatry leads to the four sins mentioned in verse 21, as I want to come to under our second lesson. So there's not idolaters, verse 20, and then the wicked people in verse 21. The reason why there's the wicked people in verse 21 is because they're idolaters of verse 20. Thus, idolatry goes far beyond the worship of carved images. But it includes anything placed before or alongside God himself. Some people live for money. Some people live for pleasure. Some people live for acceptance. Some people live for fill in the blank. And that's what those people bow down to. And that's what those people serve. And you know, the word serve in the Old Testament and the New Testaments is virtually synonymous with worship. In fact, the same Hebrew and Greek words translated worship are oftentimes translated serve. So we're all worshipers, and we all fundamentally worship one of two deities. Let me even put this down to perhaps its most simple form. You worship yourself or you worship God. Because if you think about it, all those other things have what at the end? You. We all live for ourselves, brethren, in some way or another. Or we live for God. All men worship something because all men are created to worship. Now, we know that man is created ultimately to worship God. And because man refuses to worship God by nature... He replaces God with all manner of idols. Just stop, think back. stop and think back. For me, when I was 26, I became Christian. So fundamentally, for 26 years, I served the pagan idols of this wicked and godless age. And my friend, so did you. Perhaps it wasn't as grotesque as, as, my, as my previous life, but nevertheless, we all bowed fundamentally at the same altar. And that altar is the world or creation or ourselves. And the tragedy here is Satan and his demons control those things. Devil worshipers, brother. We worship Demons. We worship at the idol of the world. For example, think of Ephesians 5.5. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, now watch how he defines or describes the covetous man, nor a covetous man who is an idolater. A covetous man is an idolater, brethren. Even if he doesn't bow to some literal idol, made of gold or silver, brass, stone, or wood, but he's bowing at the altar of things, right? Of stuff, of materials, of material things. And then he goes on to say, don't think that any of those are going to go to heaven. That's basically what he says. The reason is, is because they're not Christians. Because they're they're worshiping the wrong God. And in that case, it's the, it's the God of things. All right, so the first lesson is all men worship something. Secondly, all men reflect what they worship. And this is what I've already kind of hinted at. If you think of it like this, those, for example, who worship material things, they look materialistic, right? I mean, people are going to take upon themselves the character traits of the God, liturgy, that they worship, and, as we'll see here in a moment, even the true God, capital G, that we worship. And again, this is, I think, suggested by the fact that you find, uh, you find uh, idolaters in verse 20, and then you have the same group of people described as murderers, sorcerers, Sexual, immoral, and covetous, or thieves. Brethren, it's absolutely impossible not to be influenced or shaped by the things we worship. The things we spend most of our time with, because that's what, whatever you worship, you're going to spend the bulk of your time with, and you're going to spend most of your energy pursuing, Right? So if you're bowing at the altar of materialism, you're going to spend all of your time, all of your resources, all of your energies pursuing it. Fill in the blank, brethren. Whatever it is that we worship, we will of necessity take upon ourselves its character traits. We will be influenced and shaped by the things we worship. Now I want to illustrate this very quickly from Psalm 135. And notice verse 15. Psalm 135, 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. That's why I said back in Revelation 9 when it says the work of their hands is talking about their physical idols. Now notice how they're described. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. In other words, they're dumb, Blind, they're deaf, and they're dead, right? Those are the four different ways they're described. Verse 18, those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. In other words, those who make these idols and bow to them and trust them, they too are spiritually dumb, blind, deaf, and dead. Now, there are those things initially, and that's why they bow to these idols. But the longer they bow to these idol- idols, the more they resemble them. The longer they bow to these idols, the more spiritually dumb, blind, deaf, and dead they become. Why? Because all men reflect that which they worship. Now, these are talking about literal idols, brethren, but you can apply it across the board to all of our idols, be they physical, spiritual, or otherwise. Those who make them, verse 18, are like them. Now, this principle is highly important for Christians. I've said it's true with regards to non-Christians. Whatever we worship as non-Christians, we become like. But if that principle is true, then it's true, isn't it, for Christians? How do we become more like God? There's a question for you. Well, there's more than one answer to that. But fundamentally, we could say, here's one large way We worship God. Remember, worshiping idols equates spending our time and resources and energies pursuing those idols. So if you translate that over to a Christian, what is it to worship God? Well, it's to come to church and worship him. That's true. That's important. But surely, brethren, it goes beyond that, doesn't it? Is spending time with God, is spending our resources pursuing God, and all of our energies in pursuit of God, in bowing before God, in service to God, in loving God, in adoring God. The more we do that of necessity, the more we will what? We will look like God. Because. The principle is true with reference to non-Christians and Christians. All men reflect what they worship. All men reflect that which they worship. Remember what the proverb says: "He who walks with the wise will be made wise. And thus, the more we walk with God in Christ, the more we become like him. And brethren, we know that, right? If we're not spending time with God, if we're not walking with God, then we're not going to imitate God and look like God to the degree that we otherwise would. Why is it? For example, when you're rude and, and uh, frustrated easily and unkind towards your children or your spouse. And let's say that happens over a few days, maybe a week. Then probably if, you're, if your home is like mine, one of my children or my spouse will say, Daddy or sweetie, how are you doing? And what is the implication there? Daddy, are you spending time with God? Because we're seeing something. We're not seeing God being imitated and thus the conclusion on their part is probably it's because you're not walking with God as you are. Brother, it's it's, it's somewhat simple, isn't it? Maybe you're far different than I am. I don't think so. I think if we're honest, it's the way it is. All men reflect, reflect that which they worship. And then finally, all men are commanded to repent. You know, when I read this passage for the first time, well, the first time this week, and kind of skimmed through it, I thought, man, this is a difficult text. And actually, all of the best commentators that I have so far, this is the passage that they've agreed upon the least. And uh, it's one of three or four in the whole book that's really difficult to interpret, but I hope I have your conscience on what I suggested. I think it's most likely the meaning of the spirit. But as I read it through for the first time this week, the first thing that stuck out was rather clear to me, and that is this. God sends judgments upon the earth. To punish the wickedness of man. Right? That's obvious. Remember the word plague? It's a wound caused by a blow. God strikes man with blows. He, he wounds man. He sends plagues upon man in punishment for their sins. In fact, he ends up killing one third of them. Brother and Shirley, we learn from this text that God is a just God and he will not let the guilty go unpunished. But you know what? We also learn by inference, not only the justice of God, but we also learn something of the patience of God. Some of you know that uh, I'm heading out to Cuba in a few weeks. In fact, I hope to pray for that here in a moment. And I have to have these lectures ready about God, the doctrine of God and and. One of the lectures has to do with God's goodness. And uh, typically, Christians have understood God's goodness to include His grace, His mercy, His love, and His patience. That's the goodness of God. And there are texts that speak about God's patience toward His people. But you know what? They're very few and far between. God is patient toward his people, don't get me wrong. But the fact is, that term patient, it's sometimes translated slow to wrath. Because it's almost always, or at least the bulk of times, that term is used, Old and New Testaments, with regards to God delaying judgment upon the wicked. And here we find his justice in the fact that a third of the people are killed by the plagues. But brethren, if a third are killed by the plagues, that illustrates his justice, then two-thirds aren't. Right? And why is it that the two-thirds are not killed? That they might repent from their sins. Brother, we find here not only a very clear description of God's justice, but his mercy in the form of his patience. Now we also find tragically that native man is unwilling to repent because the text says that they do not repent even though God strikes them with blow after blow. Think of it like this. Why is it that God afflicts Native man with so many blows and wounds, these plagues, but that man might humble himself and acknowledge his sins and acknowledge God's justice and turn from his sins and find forgiveness in Christ. In fact, you might know that Romans 2 4 says the same thing. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering? That's the slow to wrath, the patience not knowing the goodness of God. That's why I say that patience is a part of God's goodness. Don't you know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? That is, it should lead you to repentance. So stop and think of it like this. God's goodness ought to lead the sinner to repentance and God's justice ought to lead the sinner to repentance. His blows as well as his love. His love in giving his son as the Savior of sinners, and the blows to humble you sinner and to drive you to your knees that you might acknowledge your sin before God and flee to Christ for forgiveness. We've been praying for one of my family members that's been stricken with these blows in the form of cancer. And at present, he hasn't been humbled. But our prayers continue to be that he will be humbled. Now we know that the blows and even, the, even the, the, the goodness of God as evidence in the general kindness and even the specific kindness of the gospel, the justice of God and the goodness of God, unless accompanied by the powerful regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, will never lead one sinner to repentance. And So we have to pray, oh God, you're giving this man blow after blow after blow humble his heart and cause him to repent from his sins and to find in Jesus Christ forgiveness. So you have an unsaved mama or grandmother or child. What ought you to pray? Oh Lord, even if it takes plagues, even if it takes your wounding blows or if it's through the realization of your kindness and goodness if it's your justice in the form of blows your goodness in the form of love either way father come by your spirit and make these to be effectual means to drive my beloved so and so outside of himself to Christ for salvation So we find God's justice in this passage. We find God's mercy and patience in the passage. But tragically, brethren, we find man's rebellious, hard heart in the passage. And they did not repent of their murders, sorceries, sexual immorality, or thefts. Well, brethren, let's sing and then we'll pray and ask that God would Accompany these plagues with regards to, specifically with regards to our loved ones, that it would lead them to repentance as a result of his Holy Spirit's work. Well, we want to stand then and sing as we transition. We sang earlier 132. Now we want to sing hymn 133.